That was really cool. Hey, what's up? <laughs> I was really blown away by that. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit. I'm the same guy in the video, even though I look 20 years younger because I don't have a beard, got a haircut. It's really good to see you. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at the Summit, and it's just great to celebrate Easter with you, uh, with you guys tonight. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a new series called For the Good of the City. Uh, what we're going to be doing is going through the book of Nehemiah. It's a book in the Old Testament, uh, but we're actually going to jump into that next week. And tonight, what we're going to do is look at the passage that Andy just read in Acts chapter 8, because it gives the overview. It gives the heartbeat, not only of what we want to accomplish in our series, but what we want to accomplish as a church. And really, for those of you here who live in Denver and are kind of checking out our church, it, you're going to get a good glimpse into what our heartbeat is is for you, what we would love to see accomplished in your life. And really, the, the, the theme verse, the heart of this entire series, the heart of our church, is what you see in verse 8, what we just read. So there was much joy in that city. So there was much joy in that city. Now, here's the thing. Probably all of you in this room like some aspect of that. You may have not thought very critically about that concept. You may not actually be living and existing for the good of the city in which you live, but you like that. Like we did an unscientific poll, and I asked you, raise your hand if you like the idea of working for the good of the city. Keep your hand down if you don't like it. If I ask that question, all of you are raising your hand in the affirmative, right? You may not be doing it. You may not have thought critically about it, but you don't want to be a jerk, and you want everybody to see that you're a jerk, right? Right? You add on to that, you add on to that the fact that for us, as young people, most of us are of my generation, in your 20s and 30s, we are millennials, and that means that we love living in cities. For my parents' generation, the suburbs were where things were going on, right? I mean, they just, you know, the city was dark, it was dangerous, you don't live downtown, but for us, many of you have chosen to live in downtown. Young people love the thought of living in Portland, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, Denver, you are never going to see, like, CSI Mississippi, right? You're never going to see CSI Mississippi. No offense, if you're from Mississippi, it's just the truth. But there's always going to be CSI something, some sort of cool city, because people love to see it and be exposed to it and learn more about it. And so we love the idea of living in a city. We love choosing to live in a city. We love the concept of working for the good of the city in which we live. But here's the question. If you're with me to this point, which I would say, no matter what you believe about God, if you're just sort of a normal, living human being, you're with me to this point. The natural question then is this, is what does that look like? What has to happen in the life of a city? What, what, what has to happen that is so big and so beautiful and so life-altering that the only way to capture what has transpired in the life of the city is what we just read in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. What has to happen? Well, there's a lot of theories about this. In, in our neighborhood, there's a lot of people who would say, if you could get the zoning permits correct in our neighborhood. I live in Curtis Park, oldest neighborhood in Denver. If you can get the zoning permits correct, kind of protect the architecture of the city, let people see the original architecture that was built in downtown, people can come to appreciate the history. That's, that's really the heartbeat of what it means to live for the good and the joy of the city. If we can protect the city's architecture and let young people be exposed to its history. Now, I don't know about you, I majored in history, so I'm sort of a history nerd, but I've never had an exposure to history that, was, that produced in my heart life-altering joy, Right? 
We've never had an experience like that. Other people would say, if you can just get the right things built downtown, the right concert venues, the right stadiums, the right type of things that let young people go and have fun and not just live and work but play as well, then you've really produced the joy and the good of the city. Now, the only problem with that is, at least in my experience, I live within walking distance of Coors Field. I love being able to walk to go see the Rockies play. But the reality is, is none of those experiences have produced in my heart life-altering joy. So what does it look like? If at this point we would say then that we love the idea of living in cities, we love the idea of working for the good of the city in which we live, what has to happen? Well, here's the thing. This week I was reading a book by a guy named Edward Glazer. He's a professor at Harvard University, and he wrote a book called Triumph of the City. It just came out, and it's really interesting. And he, kind of, he deals with this question in the introduction. And here's what he writes. He says this. He says, a lot of people mistakenly think that working for the good of the city basically is something along the lines of, if we can just get another stadium built downtown, if we can just get another venue built downtown, if we can just get that company to change their headquarters from that city to this city, if we can just get this legislature passed, then we will accomplish the, jo- the good and the joy of the city. But then he goes on and says this. He says, all those things are wrong. All those things are wrong. In the end, what we must remember is that what defines a city is its people. And what defines the good of the city is life change in the life of people. Never overlook the fact that city, the city is made of people. And in that moment, as I'm reading this book, I'm getting goosebumps because I'm thinking to myself, like, this is the heartbeat of our church. You may not believe what I believe, but this is the heartbeat of our church. For us, success for our church is not getting certain legislature passed. It's not building a bigger building. Uh, it's not being politically active. It's not being political protesters. It's, it's, in the end, success, the currency of success for our church is seeing men and women's lives changed. That's success for us. Now, here's the thing. Up to this point, everybody likes what I've said, no matter what you believe about God. And you may have even just been impressed by the fact that I quoted a Harvard professor from memory and all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing. You're about to be equally unimpressed by me because I'm just going to put my cards on the table and I'm just going to, no tricks, no like, I'm just going to tell you what I believe. Not only do I believe that we are meant as human beings, not just as Christians, but as human beings, we are created to work for the good of the city in which we live. Not only do I believe with all my heart that true joy in a city is obtained only when you see people's lives change, but here's the thing, is I believe with all my heart that that life change comes exclusively through the work of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, is what we celebrate on Easter is that Jesus didn't just die, but Jesus raised He was raised from the grave, that he is alive today, and he is still in the business of changing people's lives. Many of you in this room are are testimonies of this. I don't just feel that that's true, but I have seen with my own eyes that it's true. Many of you in this room, you grew up in really rough environments. You were abused. You were beaten. you You have experienced unbelievably distress. You have stories that you could share that would make us weep. And yet Jesus broke into your life, and he, because he is alive, he changed your life. And you are now living the story of the redeemed. Others of you have a complete opposite experience. You grew up privileged. You had your act together. You were talented, gifted, accomplished. But then finally something happened in the life, in your life that basically led to you realizing that, that there's an emptiness that comes with existing for nothing more substantial than my own personal happiness. And Jesus broke into your life. And he showed you a true and better way. And because of that, you were living the story of the redeemed as well. Our church is composed and full of men 
and women whose lives have been changed by Jesus. Men and women who we could take our stories and compile them in a beautiful anthology that preach one central truth, that Jesus is alive and he is still in the business of changing other people's lives today. And here's the thing. So I know we have a lot of guests here. I know a lot of you are checking this out for the first time. I'm just putting my cards on the table. I want to be authentic with you, real with you, no bait and switch, no Jesus pops up at the end of the sermon. We are all about Jesus. We feel like that's the best thing we can do. I just want to be real and authentic. That if you're looking for life change, and if you're look, like these ideas of working for the good and the joy of the city, the reality is, is there's hope found nowhere else other than the risen Lord Jesus. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a case study of somebody who just had their life substantially changed by Jesus. There's this dude named Philip who lived thousands of years ago in the Middle East in a region called Samaria. And Philip has just had his life changed by Jesus. He's just had his life turned upside down. And Philip does what's only natural to us when something really good happens in our lives. What we, we go and we tell other people, don't we? We go and tell other people. And Philip, in this region of Samaria, goes into this city and starts proclaiming a very simple message, a very simple and profound message that is just as relevant for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. And it has two very simple components. There's a truth and there's a cause. There's a truth for us to believe in, and there's a cause for us to give our lives to. And as Philip is trying to multiply this joy that has happened in his life and the life of this great city that he is about to enter, he says, I am coming with a very simple message. There's a truth for you to believe, and there's a cause for you to give your life to. And that's just the heart of what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to work through this passage. We just go through passages of the Bible, and we're going to see that it's just as relevant for us today as it was for them 2,000 years ago. Why don't you go ahead and look at verses 4 through 5. So you still have your Bible. Go ahead and turn that open. We're going to look at Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. And we're going to see Philip first does this. He gives a truth to believe as he's working for the good and joy of this city. Look at verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, we're told from the very beginning that basically the same thing twice. Look at it again. It says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So they preached and they preached. The Bible is repetitive for the same reason that maybe a friend or a wife is repetitive. If your wife tells you the same thing twice, you know what it means? You better get this. It's really important or it won't go well for you. Am I right? Amen? Anybody married here? Okay. That's the way it's going to go. He says it's incredibly important for you to understand that there is a truth to be believed. He comes into this city and proclaims a truth. And the heart of the truth is very, very simple. The heart of the truth is this. It is the gospel. Okay, the gospel. Now, I know probably all of you are familiar with that term. Some of you may have grown up uh, not going to church, but you're familiar with popular culture. And in popular culture, we use that word gospel. We say things like the gospel truth, to mean we're really, really serious about something. For others of you, you did grow up in church, and maybe gospel was a genre of music that wasn't particularly good, but you know, maybe your parents made you listen to, and you couldn't wait to move out so you could listen to your own music. And what, the Bible instead has a very clear definition in mind. It says that the gospel is a historical truth. It's a historical event that Jesus rose 
or that Jesus died and that Jesus rose. Paul, later in, the book of, uh, later in the book of 1 Corinthians, later in the New Testament, says this very, very clearly. He comes to define this. He says, there's no mystery about it. For I delivered to you, as he's defining the gospel, I, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says, this is the very heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus died and that Jesus was raised, that Jesus was executed and Jesus got up and started walking around again. And it's this truth that Philip came to believe that turned his life upside down. And he goes into the city and starts proclaiming as well. And the people in that city reject the faith that they grew up with. They, believe, they accept it for themselves and it turns their lives upside down as well. Now here's the thing. If you think critically whatsoever, and if you aren't a follower of Jesus, or you're sort of philosophical and like to think about things, this is the point where you start pushing back and disagreeing here. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you're not offended now, I'm going to extend you the courtesy to tell you, you should be, you should be offended at this point. Because here's the deal. As Philip is going to the city, and he is doing the one thing that our culture does not tolerate more than anything else, he is going in and he is telling people that they are wrong. And not just telling them that they're wrong, but telling them that they're wrong about God. Now, you try this in your workplace, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to get fired. You try this if you run for political office, you know what's going to happen? You are going to lose by a landslide. You try this at a party, you know what's going to happen? You will not be invited back, and you will be laughed out of the room. Philip goes into the city, and he starts proclaiming Jesus. He says, Jesus died, and Jesus rose. These very simple truths that we were created in the image of God and yet each of us have turned our backs on God. And the way that the Bible describes that is that we have sinned against God. Yet God does not turn his back against us and he comes by grace and chases us down and through the work of his son Jesus does for us what we can have done for ourselves. He lives the life we should have lived. He dies of the death we should have died. He rises from the grave conquering sin, Satan, and death. And through him, we can have forgiveness of sins and an entirely new life. He comes in proclaiming that. And the people believe. Their lives are turned upside down. They reject the faith of their families. They turn away from the religion that they were raised in their culture to believe. And they have an entirely new way of looking at the world. It turns their world upside down. Now, here's the thing. If you still think critically, which is cool. Like, I grew up thinking this way. This is where you push back. And here's what you say. You say, you know what? Yeah, maybe 2,000 years ago, they would do that. Like 2,000 years ago, they were ignorant, less educated, and have access to information. I mean, 2,000 years ago, you could get anybody to believe anything, right? But here's the thing. I would actually disagree with that. I would say it's much easier today to get somebody to change their mind than it was 2,000 years ago. Let me, let, me, let me explain. A few weeks ago, I'm hanging out with a bunch of people, and this very important debate breaks out. It was a debate about whether or not there are more cows than people in the state of New Jersey. Incredibly important debate. You know how this happens. And so people were going back and forth, and, you know, there's all these hypotheses thrown out and whatsoever. You know what I did to settle the debate? I pulled out my iPhone, I went on Google, and I Googled, are there more cows than people in the state of New Jersey? And after about, you know, five-tenths of a second, I present the answer, and one person in that room ultimately had to change their mind. All y'all want to know if there's more cows than people in the state of New Jersey, right? There are not more cows than people in the state of New Jersey. We're back now? Okay, Good. <laughs> In that instant, because we have unlimited access to information, because we can just go out and in a moment's notice grab information about anything, you can get somebody to change their mind in a second. But 2,000 years ago, 
When people grew up in a culture like this, where this was sort of all they ever knew, where to reject the faith of their family meant to be disowned, meant to be persecuted, meant to be kicked out of the family, and you couldn't just hop on a plane and move somewhere else. In order for somebody to reject the faith of their family and the faith of the culture in which they grew up in, there would have to be overwhelming evidence, substantial proof. The burden of proof was enormous for an entire city to be turned upside down by a truth claim like this. But you know what happens? Is that Philip comes in and he makes proclamation. He says Jesus died and Jesus rose. And the city, I mean, this is happening at the same time where there were eyewitnesses and they could verify whether this was a true claim or not. I mean, people sought out the evidence and the overwhelming evidence pointed to the fact that this actually happened. And the people understood after that, if this is true, then this changes everything. If this is true, it changes everything and it demands a response from me. And 2,000 years ago, people who could have known whether it was true or not because they were eyewitnesses to the events that transpired said, this is true, I will reject the faith that I grew up with, and I will accept and follow Jesus. It's the same way for us today. The claims are just as alarming today. I mean, think about it. The, The simple claim, Jesus died and Jesus rose. Now, the death part isn't that big of a deal, is it? I mean, it's a big deal in the Bible, but for us, all of us are gonna die. We're all going to die. You know that. You may try to resist it. We as Americans will spend $100 billion this year on anti-aging products and procedures. We may try to fight it as people of Denver who have the most brilliant workout regimens, and we go and climb mountains in our free time, don't we? We will do whatever it takes. We will put money, we will put resources, we will put the greatest scientific minds, and we will invent iPods, and we will invent self-driving cars. But you know what we haven't overcome yet? The fact that every single person in this room, no matter how much money you make, no matter how educated you are, no matter what, 100% of you, you will get old, parts of your body will sag that you wish wouldn't sag, and one day, You will come to lay your head on the pillow for the final time and you will breathe your final breath. It was like that 2,000 years ago and it's like that today. Nothing is new under the sun. And just when we think, just when we start to believe that that's the hand that everybody has dealt, just when we think those are the facts of life, a crazy claim bursts in. That Jesus not only died, but Jesus rose. And the people who could have known whether or not this is true reject the faith of their family and their culture, and they say, I believe that. I believe that. And it demands a response to me. And my response is, yes, I will believe. They understood the magnitude of the claims and the consequences if they're true. They understood if Jesus has conquered the grave, if he has defeated the greatest human, human enemy that we have no answer for of death itself, not only does that help me overcome death, but what can't he help me overcome? He has overcome the greatest obstacle I can imagine. What, what about my day-in, day-out life that changes everything for me? Let me understand, like if Jesus is God, and if he created life where there is death and done exclusively what God can do, That changes everything because it means the God of the universe has come down and made himself known to us and he desires a relationship and desires to make peace between us. 
They understood the magnitude. If this is true, this changes everything. And this demands a response from me. And here's the thing, is that is an area where this culture is much more advanced than us. You may laugh and mock people 2,000 years ago, but at least they understood that what Jesus said demands a response. And us, in our culture, we invent all sorts of alternatives, right? And so we, we invent like sweetie pie Jesus, long blonde hair, flowing locks. He's got a cool beard. You know, he's sort of soft-spoken, effeminate, wears sandals. You know, he carries around a baby lamb in his arms all the time. And he says really, you know, thoughtful and gentle things. And he hopes, you know, because he's so sweet and meek and mild that you will just possibly maybe pick and choose the parts of what he says and apply them to your life. And he'll be oh so grateful if you will. We invent the funny guy Jesus. This is the Jesus of South Park where, you know, again, he's got, you know, he looks sort of like a hippie and he's got sandals and he says outlandish things that always is very funny. And what Jesus is is nothing more than a punchline that can be laughed at. And what these people understood, what they had the intellectual integrity to follow through with, is that Jesus does not leave those as legitimate options for us. With the claims that Jesus made, I am God, I have died to atone for your sins, I have conquered the grave, and in the process conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell. A guy like that, you can't be ambivalent towards. You can't be neutral towards. You either write him off as a liar and a lunatic, or you bend your knee and you worship him as Lord. Those are the only legitimate options. C.S. Lewis said this. We're going to bring it up on the screen for you so you can just see. He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And yet, in our city, which I love so much, that moderately important, is the most popular cultural view of Jesus. He's a nice guy. He's a nice teacher. He helps me live a better life. He helps me be more moral. But when it comes to me, like, sacrificing everything for him, when it comes to me believing the entirety of what he said, when it comes to me laying down everything and saying, you are God and I will worship, obey, and follow you, I don't really like that part, so I'm not going to take it. Don't you understand, 2,000 years ago, they understood what we don't understand in this city. Is that is not a viable option for you. In the end, you have to answer a question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because a man who makes claims like the one he makes, you cannot be ambivalent towards and you cannot be neutral towards. In the end, you either accept or you reject. That's what these people understood, and they understood that there was a truth to be believed. That the gospel is true. Jesus has died and Jesus rose, and this changes everything. That's only half of the story. The story continues, and what we see is that there wasn't just a truth to be believed, but also that Philip came saying that there is a cause for us to take on as well. Not just a truth to be believed, but a cause for us to take on as well. Look at verse 6. The text says this, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, here's the thing. Don't get caught up in verse 7. Demons flying out of people, people being you know, sick and not sick anymore. Don't Stick with me here, okay? I want to f- That's important. It's true. I believe it happened. But but the heart of what's going on here happens in verse 6. I'm going to read it again. It says, And the crowds with one accord 
paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now, that phrase, paid attention in the text, when you look at the original language that the Bible was written in, it doesn't really capture the fullness of what it's saying. It's, it's more along the lines of like, they, they paid really close attention. They closely examined. They paid extremely close attention to see if Philip, that we know this, let's put this in contemporary language, to see if Philip didn't just talk the talk, but also walked the walk, Right? We say that all the time. We want, to, we want to closely examine. Philip, I not only want to see what you're saying, but I want to see what you're showing as well. It's probably a feeling that many of you have had before. I, I hear what you're saying about who Jesus is, and that sounds good. That sounds even too good to be true, but show me that it's true. I like what you have to say, but live the kind of life that makes me want to have it be true. Don't just speak the gospel to me, but show me the gospel so that I can believe. What they were looking for is authenticity. And here's the thing, as many of you in this room, I don't know if you're, you know, we have a lot of guests, and many of you in this room may have just come with a friend, or they were bugging you at work, and you're like, fine, I'll go to church, it's Easter, maybe you Google church in Denver, and you saw our sweet website, and you came, and ended up here. I don't know what the deal is. Here's the thing. As many of you, many of you have probably said these words. I don't want to be part of Jesus' movement. I don't want to be part of the church. I don't want anything to do with Christianity because there are hypocrites. Because I had this brother, this uncle, this dad who was a pastor. I had this exposure, this experience. And because of that, I want nothing to do with it whatsoever. And I understand that. I feel that. If, that, if that's you, if you've had a really crappy experience with somebody who proclaims the name of Jesus, which all of us have, I'll just tell you, like, I'm really sorry for that. I'm really sorry. No, no catch with that. Like, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. But here's the deal. Is that when you look at the text, what you see is that the origins of Christianity, at the origins of the movement of Jesus, one of the highest priorities was authenticity. That people would not just talk the talk, but people would walk the walk. And Philip was such a beautiful example because he comes into the city and he does just that. He comes putting on display authentic Christianity, not just speaking, but showing. And the people of this city are exposed to authentic Christianity and they cannot help but be changed by it. They can't help but be changed by it. And they come away from that experience and they say, I not only want to believe what you believe, but I want to live the kind of life that you're calling me to live as well. I not only want to believe what you believe, but I want to take up the cause that you've taken up as well. I want to not only believe in Jesus, I want to take up his cause as well. Now that word cause, again, we're millennials, that should be a great, that's a very positive word. If advertisers and sociologists are right, for us as millennials, if you were born somewhere in the mid-70s into even the 90s, you're a millennial, congratulations. And what it means is that for us, we love the concept of causes. We love it so much, and it affects the entirety of our lives. Sociologists tell us this, that it affects not just the shoes that we buy, right, Tom's shoes, or not even the beauty products that we, that we buy, that you buy. I don't buy beauty products, but, you know, like Dove's campaign for real beauty or whatever it is. Well, what advertisers have recognized, what companies have recognized, why there's a boom in an entire industry of marketing called cause advertising is that for us as millennials, we love a cause. We love the idea of existing for something bigger than ourselves. And because of that, companies have realized that they can advertise you a cause and not even the merits of their product, and we will buy, we will buy it up like crazy, won't we? 
Now, here's the thing. It's interesting when you read the feedback on that, when you read kind of commentaries and sociologists' opinions, and a lot of times older people are very critical. They say young people are disillusioned, they're illogical, they're not realistic about the world, and they should have basically more, more of a conscience than basically being able to go to REI and buy a granola bar and know that 1% of the profits are going to go to you know, fight rainforests being cut down in Brazil and all of a sudden like, feel better about our lives. Like That's what they say. Like, it should take more than, to, more than that to alleviate a guilty conscience, shouldn't it? And here's the thing is there is a lot of criticism, and some of it is fair, but I don't want to criticize, I don't want to critique, but instead I want to approve of this desire in our hearts to exist for a cause. And the reason for that is because when we read the scriptures, what we see is the reason that you yearn for a cause isn't because you are a young, disillusioned millennial. It's because you were created in the image of God who created you for a cause. That's what this text is proclaiming, that they would take up a cause, the cause of Jesus, the cause they were called to give their lives away to. And here's why I want to push on some of you tonight. Because some of you have much too sterile a view of Christianity. The only reason you're here is because it's Easter, and that's sort of what your family did growing up. You go to church on Easter because that's what people are supposed to do. And when you think about Christianity, you have a much too sterile view. And so what comes to mind when you think of Jesus is nothing more than like a few old people who are very moralistic and have a long list of rules in an attempt to sort of stifle any fun that you may have, try to get you into heaven, and try to move you from being a bad person to a good person. Others of you in this room, when you think of the church, you think of something, nothing more than a cold-hearted institution, a group of old people in an old building filled up by other old people who are only there because that's sort of what they have to do. They don't have anything better to do with their time. And don't you see from the text is that the origins of Christianity, at the beginning of this movement, what we see is not some sterile cultural tradition. That's, that's all that those views are. But instead, a faith that was not only about a belief, but it was about giving our lives away to the one great cause that our hearts are wired to give our lives away to. And because of that then, our response to Jesus is not just to accumulate some facts about him. It's not just to believe right things. It's not just to approve of him with our lips, but instead that his cause would become our cause. That we would not just speak about Jesus, but we would show Jesus. That we wouldn't just believe on him, but he would, we would put everything down for him and we would put on display his goodness and his grace towards us that we would not just admire him, but instead become ambassadors for him in our neighborhoods and in our places of work and wherever God sends us, in our neighborhoods and in our great city. What we see from the very origins of Christianity is there's not just a belief for us to believe, but there is a cause for us to take on, the great cause of Jesus, to exist for the good of the city and for the world and for the glory of God. Yeah, here's what we see in the close in the closing is this. It's a natural question. What, what happens when men and women grab a hold of a vision like that? What, what happens in our lives when we not only believe what we're supposed to believe, but we live out what we're supposed to live out? Well, after four simple verses, what we see is our answer in verse eight. So there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. People's lives are changed. And can you imagine 
Can you imagine if the men and the women of the Summit Church not only gave their lives away to believing what they're supposed to believe, but putting into action what they're supposed to put into action? Can you imagine that the hundred or so people that we have gathered here, rather than just going home, you know, full of food and fun, and we got to play cornhole, things like that, Instead, we go home full of the Holy Spirit, and he compels us and burdens us to exist for something more substantial and robust than our own personal happiness. Can you imagine what would happen for those of you who are just here for a friend, and you don't have anything to do with Jesus or anything to do with the church, but you're just trying to appease a relationship, that you would leave here changed and finally see the truth that you were meant to believe and the cause that you were meant to take on? What would that look like? What would happen? What would happen in your family and in your marriage? What would happen in your workplace? What would happen in your neighborhood? What would happen in this great city? Imagine, imagine what would transpire. And it's self-evident what would happen. It's what we see again in verse eight. It's no mystery. The Bible tells us plainly it's the heartbeat of our church. It's the heartbeat of this series. It's the heartbeat of what we celebrate. It's the heartbeat of what you were created for. So there was much joy in the city. People's lives were changed, and there was much joy in the city. There is a truth that you must believe, the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and he was raised on your behalf. There's a cause that you must give your life away to, the cause of Jesus to make him famous, not just accept him, but to follow him and to make him famous in whatever sphere of influence that God has entrusted you with. This is the call of God on every single person's life. And this is the cause that brought great joy to this great city. Here's the deal. Here's what I want to do in closing. 2,000 years ago, people understood that the natural response to this was was to do something with this. People understood that 2,000 years ago. We don't understand that as well today, but I'm going to challenge you to understand as well today. If you want to pull out this blue card, it's either in the Bible that you're holding or the Bible that's underneath your seat. There's a blue card right here. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Because here's the deal. There's a truth that you must believe and there is a cause you must take on. Even if you remember, go ahead and pull this out. So there's like not 15 people who feel awkward. Everybody pull this out, okay? I will literally sit here until every single person has this. I'm just kidding. There's a truth you must believe. There is a cause you're meant to give your life away to. Here's the deal. Anytime the gospel was taught, what we see in the Bible is there was one of three responses. People understood that there needed to be a response. There was always one of three responses. The first was this, is that people just flat out rejected. Sometimes they even laughed. They broke out in laughter. I appreciate that being none of you tonight, but they broke out in laughter. They said, I don't want anything to do with this. This is ridiculous. And they just walked away. They understood that you either accept or reject. And they said, we will reject. If that's you tonight, you don't have to fill this out. We're not going to hunt you down. I'm not going to like stalk you on Facebook or anything like that. Nothing, okay? I won't bother you. Thanks for coming. Enjoy the food. You won't hear from me ever again if you don't want to, okay? Here's the second response. Some people said, I want to know more. Some people said, I want to know more. This seems interesting. I don't really have all the answers, but this is intriguing for me. I want to know more about this. This is a substantial claim, and I seem, it seems like I, I, I need to investigate it, at least to know if it's true or if it's not true. Here's the thing. If that's you, I want you to fill this out, And there's a little box down here that says, learn more about becoming a Christian. Learn more about becoming a Christian. Or get more info of the Summit Church. Those first two boxes. Get more info about the Summit Church. Learn more about becoming a Christian. You fill out your name, your information. You check one of those. And we will help you do that. We'll help you do that. Okay? Here's the other deal. 
is that whenever the gospel was preached, people didn't just reject, people didn't just say, I want to hear more, but some people believe. They said, I don't have all the answers, but I have enough answers. I want to know and follow Jesus. We anticipate that many of you here tonight aren't followers of Jesus right now. We want to give you the opportunity to do that. You don't have to walk an aisle, you don't have to raise a hand, you don't have to pray a prayer, anything like that. Here's what you need to do. You need to fill out the information on here, and you need to check out, check off, learn more about becoming a Christian, okay? Learn more about becoming a Christian, and we will help you do that. For those of you who maybe are followers of Jesus now but want to take next steps, maybe you haven't been baptized yet, you check off, I would like to find out how to be baptized. For those of you who haven't been part of a church, you don't have a lot of Christian friends, you're just starting to survive right now, we want to help you thrive in your walk with Jesus. You check off, become a member of the church. You fill this out, where are we going to drop it off? Back there, the back corner, where Adrian is, there's a basket right there. If there's anything we can do to help you take your next step in your relationship with God, we want to do that. Let's wrap this up. We are meant to live for the joy of the city. The joy of the city is comes through people's lives being changed. And Philip saw thousands of people's lives change because they finally came to believe the truth that they were created to believe and they finally began to give their lives away to the cause that they were created for. My prayer, what I've been praying for weeks for many of you, is that you would take the next step in making that happen in your life. And you would look at Easter Sunday in 2012 as a day that you made one of the best decisions that you've ever made in your entire life. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you so much for your gospel. And we thank you so much that you're not dead, but you are alive. And because of that, you are in the business of still changing people's lives today. God, I pray that you would not just change people's lives today, Uh, you would not just be changing people's lives uh, throughout the city, you'd be changing people's lives in this room. And I pray for men and women uh, who haven't been coerced into believing Jesus, who haven't been manipulated into believing Jesus, but they would understand that it's just true, and that demands a response. God, I pray that people have been saved. I pray that people want to be baptized. I pray that people want to join the church. I pray that people would lay down their self-autonomy and say, I do not want to be in control of my life anymore. I want Jesus to be. If he is God and he has done what he claims to have done, that changes everything. And I want that not just to be something I know about, I want that to be something that applies to my life. So God, continue changing people's lives. God, continue changing the world upside down. And God, I pray that through the Summit Church and the other churches in the city of Denver, that years from now, people would be able to look at the city of Denver and say, there was much joy in that city. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.